0: So our reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, and we're reading the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The Gospel reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, and can be found on page 973 of the Church Bibles. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord.
2: Great. Well, thank you very much for having me once again. Um, It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Um, do keep uh, open the, the Bible reading, which is uh, printed on your service sheet, um, and you can find it on page 1,234 of, uh, of the Bibles, uh, of the Church Bibles. We're going to be referring to it as we go through uh, this morning. So let's pray. Loving Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our God, our rock, and our saviour. Amen. Well today we're starting a series, a new series on the the, uh, letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, And our starting point today is a letter to a church in Ephesus But before we dig into the letter, I just want to take a a step back to think about a bit of the context. And for those of you that were here on Wednesday evening, I understand that you were looking at chapter 1 as you you went through that. So we have here a revelation, a vision of Jesus given to John. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, John sets out his revelation, his vision. He says he's in the spirit and hears a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And at that point, he turns around to see who is speaking and he sees an incredible vision behind him. Central to the vision is Jesus. The Christ. Lord of the church and Lord of history. But the first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands. Which to someone who's familiar with the Old Testament would suggest the tabernacle in the wilderness. And therefore the presence of God. So he sees these lampstands and he's immediately thinking the presence of God is here. And he sees among the lampstands one like a son of man. Does that ring any bells with you? It was Jesus' favorite description of himself. He said, I am the son of man. The son of man has come to seek and save the lost. And he says, I'm the first and the last and the living one. Can you imagine what John must have been feeling? He's thinking the glory of God, the presence of God is just behind me and it's Jesus. He sees a vision of the Lord. But what about this letter itself that goes to, this, uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus? Well firstly we know that the letter contains the words of the one who John has seen in the vision. It contains the words of Jesus. He's the one who, we're told earlier on, was holding the seven stars, that's the seven churches, in his right hand, and who walks among those golden lampstands. Now just in passing, just note that it doesn't mean that there were only seven churches at this time, there were many more, but these are the key churches in the cities in the area that were representative of the whole church. And in many ways, the messages of the letters to them continue to be representative of the churches today. So it's really relevant for us, as we sit here, to say, what is God saying to us as a church? Not just St. Matt's, not just St. Matthew's, but more broadly to the church across the UK and across the world. So our first letter then is to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the world at the time. It was a metropolis of Asia. It was on the coast between the great trade routes of Rome and the centre of Asia. It was prosperous and conscious of political and religious prestige. Prestige because it had great sporting facilities. It would have been the place that would have been the obvious choice for the Olympic Games. They regularly held their sports games there. There was a massive great temple to Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And devotion to Artemis was passionate. She ensured life and prosperity. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. The largest building in the Greek world. And Jesus says to the church that's meeting in this amazing city, I know your deeds. Can you imagine if Jesus was to say that to St. Matthew's today? Because of the seven letters that are written to the churches, six of them contain that refrain I know your deeds. It sounds vaguely threatening, doesn't it? (laughs) I know your deeds, I know where you live. But it's only threatening if we've got something to hide. It's actually a relief if we know that He knows us and understands us better than we do, our own situations, our successes and failures. I know your deeds. Not I know what you believe, not I know how many services you come to. I know your deeds. It's not that salvation comes through deeds. We know that, don't we? Salvation comes through faith in Jesus. But for those who know Jesus, for the people of God, it seems that our deeds are paramount. And he goes on to commend three things in relation to their deeds. First of all, hard work. I know your deeds, your hard work. You see, church is not a club that we can just join with. It's not an additional extra in our lives. It's a relationship with Christ which demands constant obedience. And actually, sometimes that's hard work, isn't it? Of course, it's an amazing joy, but there's also a need to serve, to work hard for him. And this Ephesian church has been doing just that. And Jesus says... I know your deeds, I know your hard work. Thanks. Secondly, he's saying, I know your perseverance. It's great to hear, isn't it, in an age that looks for everything to be instant. That's what we love about our microwaves. That's what we love about our TVs, that we can just get information instantaneously. We can get our coffee uh, warmed up nice and quickly. I was reviewing um, a CV for a job the other day for someone who'd been doing the same job for 20 years. And I was really quick to dismiss that CV in my head because I thought, oh, they've been doing the same job for 20 years. They've they're obviously got no desire to move on, no desire to go anywhere. And somebody pointed out to me that actually this shows great perseverance, great loyalty, great commitment. The Ephesian church were commended for their perseverance, for seeing things through. We don't like like the pain of sticking to the unglamorous task of service week in, week out, do we? Going for coffee with that person whom we struggle to strike up conversation with, or doing the gardens here. Whatever it is, when we struggle to stick at developing a discipline in prayer and in all the things we do, Jesus says, I love your perseverance. And the third thing that he commends is a refusal to tolerate false teachers. In verse 6, he says, what you hate, I hate. It's clear that he approves of their testing and judging of those who've tried to distort Christianity. These were probably people who at one stage had had authority to teach. Advocates of Christian freedom who perhaps reveled in Paul's message that said it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Free from all the demands of the moral code such as Jewish law. Freedom but without any radical change in lifestyle. Salvation for the soul but it doesn't matter how you behave. That's not Christianity. And this group, the people that were called the Nicolaitans, ignored the truth of the gospel. Yes, we are free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. So it's right to test the teachings. I hope that's what you do when you get literature through the door or people knocking on the door from other religions um, just because they mention the name Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're right. So the Ephesian church is doing well. They're commended for their hard work, their perseverance, and their intolerance of false teachers. But did you notice the big but? Verse 4. Here it comes the sucker punch. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forgotten your first love. Now I don't know who you love more than anyone else in the world. Just just think about that for a moment. Who you love more than anyone else in the world. It may be a spouse, a parent, a child, a friend, or even a pet. But just for a moment, can you imagine that treasured person turning to you and saying, you've forgotten about me. I'm uh, very fortunate to be married to a wonderful lady called Carrie. And it would break my heart if she ever turned to me and said, Dan, you've forgotten about me. You've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten what it was when we were first uh, getting together. The excitement of it all. Or what happens if one of my boys turned around and said, Dad, you don't love me as you used to love me. Wouldn't you be heartbroken? And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. In their search and their quest to defend the truth, they'd forgotten what it was to love See, passion for truth is dangerous unless it's wedded to a Christ like love. So it's a scary thought, isn't it? Where is our love? Because it's on that that the survival and the growth of our church depends. Recovery of love is not an optional extra for this church in Ephesus, it's integral to its future. Look at verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I will take the presence of God away from this church. You see, failure is possible. Now, there's a scary thought. Christ promises to build his church, he doesn't promise to build the Church of England. He doesn't promise to build St. Matthew's. He promises to build his church. The reality in Ephesus is that this first lampstand was removed. Today, both the church and the city have completely vanished. Now that's a sober warning, isn't it? That a local church can so completely cease to live in a Christian way that it ceases to become a church of Christ. It becomes an empty shell where his presence, even though it might be wonderfully taught, is unrecognisable. So if we're a loveless church, holding too strongly to truth without love, then let's remind ourselves of Paul's words to the Corinthians. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith, So as to remove mountains. But have not love. I am nothing. But there is great news. Because love can rise again. It's not too late for us. If we're in the position of the Ephesian church. We can recover our love. We can remember our first love again. And actually... A great place to do that, if you want to understand how, is to go into the book of the Ephesians, the letter of the Ephesians. Because in that letter that Paul wrote is a great description of how we can recover love. We're utterly dependent on Christ's love for us. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Our security depends on Christ's love. And we're expected to love all God's people regardless of who they are. And then further on in Ephesians, it talks about love being a quality that we receive from God and which flows through us as we ask him to change us. And he says that we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So how do we practice love? How do you as a congregation practice love? Love for those who live in this community. Love for the hurting and lost. Well, I was just looking through your notices and there are great ways that you do that. The Macmillan coffee morning. Showing love for others. The Alpha Course. Showing love because you want to share the truth of your faith with those that don't know him. The pastoral care that you undertake. Even what's happening across the way in kids' church is an expression of your love. Of the love of Jesus that's in you, that you are sharing with others. And look at what happens in verse 7 to those who overcome. To those who regain their first love. Well, there's a promise of eternal life. And he uses a picture from the Garden of Eden in Genesis, the tree of life, which is a paradise of God. John has seen this amazing vision of Christ. In a robe to his feet with a golden sash, with head and hair white like wool and eyes like blazing fire. The living one who holds the keys of death at whose feet he fell down as if he was dead. And now he hears this message to the church in Ephesus and he's reminded first and foremost of the importance of love. And it's a theme that appears again and again in his letters. Tradition has it that John himself was a bishop in Ephesus at one time. And he used to preach a very simple sermon at the end of his time there. It was a sermon that had just one sentence, and you may be wishing that I had taken a lead from him but a sermon of just one sentence, and the sentence was this: "Little children love one another. It's that that the Ephesian Church is needing to hear. It's that, that Jesus' church in this country, here in Reading, and perhaps even here at St. Matt's, need to hear, little children love one another. Amen.